Spring has come, and with it, all of the blessings of the Lord. I'm going to go to the screen now, and if you could transfer that for me, I'd surely appreciate it. We are at a pivotal time in our lives, and before I go into the message, I just want to give you a little bit of background. One of the blessings you'll find when you study the Bible is God shows up. And it doesn't happen in more powerful a way at any other time than when you are walking through the word of God. When you open the Bible and expose yourself to the inspired thought of the presence and power of divinity. Those are transformational moments that really don't happen. And in my own experience, I'm giving this testament that don't really happen as effectively in any other way than when you are studying God's word. There's a power in God's word that is not found in religious movies it's not found in religious songs. It's not found in anything. That's why when Jesus was in the moment of his greatest test and trial, he said to the devil, it is written. And so today what we're going to do together is we're going to walk through God's word and discover those pivotal moments. And we're going to ask ourselves the question, when will that moment happen for me or has it happened for me. And it is that moment that when it happens and how it happens, and when it comes to you, you will know more than anyone else that who you are prior to that moment and who you are after that moment is such a contrast that your life will never be the same. So bow your heads with me this morning as we go into the message entitled, Epiphany. Loving Father in heaven, what a blessing it is to be able to approach your word with a solemn attitude. As, as those who are watching and those who are here listen to the, to the tumbling and rumbling words of a human voice, may they hear through this frail instrument sprinkled words of guidance divine enlightenment and understanding from your word. Speak to us now, we pray and ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like you to go with me to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and I'm going to read for you verse 9. Mark chapter 9, and I'm going to read from God's word, verse 9. And I don't have it on the screen this morning intentionally because I want you to have that epiphany moment from the very beginning. Go in your own Bible and find God speaking to you from its inspired pages. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the son of man 
had risen from the dead. <laughs> I have to smile because just in knowing what's going to happen and knowing where that's leading, uh, I have to slow myself down because we're going someplace together. An epiphany isn't an everyday Christian word, word like sin and salvation. Epiphany comes from the Greek word, which when translated into English means a manifestation or an appearance, a manifestation primarily connected to a divine manifestation or an appearance connected to something that God has ordained to transform someone's life. On the other side of that, for many Christians, the word epiphany refers to a manifestation that many people say happened 12 days after Christmas. It's a celebration that takes place all around the world. You've heard the, the kind of rhetorical song, the 12 days of Christmas, and you go from one, two, three, four, all the way to 12. Well, that was inspired from the foundation of the belief of the epiphany. Many believe that January 6th was the official end of the Christmas vacation. And in places around Europe and in some of the Spanish countries, it is a massive celebration. The streets are filled with colorful costumes. People are exchanging gifts. They have Santa Claus on one side, Jesus on the other. And it's just a celebration that they all made it through a season where they believe that Jesus was manifested. His divine presence was revealed to a world that for most of the year did not even know he existed. And they say this was an epiphany for the world. And some of us can identify with that. You know, when you go to Walmart during the month of November and December, you hear songs about Christ that you don't hear in July or May. You hear songs that talk about Jesus and the birth of Christ that you would not hear any other month of the year. And for some unusual reason, Jesus begins to become real, at least in the airs, in the mind of those who start saying Merry Christmas. Christ all of a sudden becomes a word now connected to a celebration. But the word epiphany has another popular meaning. Not only an epiphany of, of a divine revelation or a divine manifestation or appearance, but it also means a sudden flash of understanding or insight. In, in other words, in, other, in so many lives, many of the things that we are surrounded by happen because somebody somewhere had a sudden flash. And they got an idea of inspiration to create something and to design something that otherwise would not have happened. I, I had the chance to read through some of the stories like Steve Jobs. I'm, I'm fascinated by people that, are, that go from a mundane, ordinary life, and then all of a sudden, everybody around the world knows his name, Steve Jobs. Well, if you don't know the name Steve Jobs, then you don't have an Apple computer or an Apple device. Because without Steve Jobs and his inspiration as a young man, that would not exist but it dominates the world platform. One of those that you might remember very well is a man, this picture is a 
picture of a young man by the name of Mark Zuckerberg. He's the founder of Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg, while attending Harvard University, just like Bill Gates, he launched the Facebook social network from his dormitory room on February 4th, 2004. As he was studying, trying to figure out how to connect people, he was able on campus to connect friends socially, but he said, what, what would happen if I found a way to connect people around the world? And from 2004, in eight short years, from 2004 to 2012, he had more than one billion users connected to the Facebook platform. And like Bill Gates, who also attended Harvard and left after he was inspired to connect a particular language called basic and then developed the first personal computer. Bill Gates left Harvard without completing his education. Mark Zuckerberg attending the very same university left Harvard without completing his education. They figured, why do I need an education when I just receive an epiphany that education could not accomplish? And you know, the name Bill Gates, you know, the name Steve jobs, and we surely do know the name Mark Zuckerberg. As of March this year, Mark Zuckerberg's net worth is $103 billion, $103.6, $106 billion. Is that what I wrote down? That's correct, $106 billion. He is now listed as one of the fifth richest persons in the world. What happened? What happened? In his dormitory room, he had an epiphany, a sudden flash and understanding or insight of how to go from something that's local to something that has now wrapped the world in communication. That's the good side. On the other side, it's wrecked millions of lives. <laughs> for those that don't know how to handle it, for those that are absorbed by it and taken captive by it and can't live a moment without it. Some people have become Facebook addicts because they did not understand what Mark Zuckerberg was trying to accomplish. There was another very inspiring moment that many of us look at as an epiphany. And this gentleman is very well known in the modern vernacular of things. He rose to prominence more significantly on the world stage over the last few years before he passed. His name is John Lewis, known as one of the foremost leaders as it comes to equality and ethnic diversity in America, pushing the coin. He's known for the phrase John Lewis said, he says, get in good trouble, necessary trouble and help redeem the soul of America. When John Lewis began to see what had transpired over the last four years in our country, seeing it going backward when it came, came to racial equality, he decided as a young man growing up during the time of Martin Luther King's struggle for equality, being arrested 40 times, 40 times, he was arrested 40 times. And for what? All he wanted was for people to be treated as equals in the same nation, one nation under God worth liberty and justice, for all. 
Listen to what he said. He talked about his epiphany moment. He said, take a long, hard look down the road you have to travel once you have made a commitment to work for change. Know that this transformation will not happen right away. Change often takes time. It rarely happens all at once. In the movement, we didn't know how history would play itself out. When we were getting arrested and waiting in jail or standing in unmovable lines on the courthouse steps, we didn't know what would happen, but I like the way he said this, but we knew it had to happen. He knew that change had to come. What catapulted him to the stage over the last four or five years after, before he passed away in 2020? He said, once you get to the stage of complete commitment, what word did I just say? Complete commitment. Whatever you're standing for, when God is behind it, it is going to happen. He had an epiphany moment. He saw in the struggle over the last 30, 40 years that there had to be a change in America, and he stood for those values. And Mark Zuckerberg's epiphany was the epiphany of digital value. But John Lewis's epiphany was the epiphany of human value. The epiphany of human value. When you go further and you study about the epiphany, psychologists and authors and others use the concept of an epiphany as they say, a sudden breakthrough in their research of understanding human behavior. Now I take my hat off to anybody that gets to the place where they believe they can understand human behavior. Because humans are the most unpredictable, say amen. You could think you got it all right today, and all of a sudden tomorrow you're thrown into another tailspin because human behavior is unpredictable. But as we keep that in mind, we have to think of the religious heritage of the word epiphany. And when you think about the religious heritage of the word epiphany, you have to ask yourself the question, what spiritual epiphany? And I'm going to say this question very slowly. What spiritual epiphany have believers had that changes and transforms their walk with Christ? At what point does your life go from I'm just a member to I'm sold out to Christ? I'm just a person that attends a fellowship to a person that is determined to make it to the kingdom. And that can only happen when your life experiences an epiphany from God. Because nothing is more self-defeating than a Christian whose life has not changed. I take you down another road. One of the most transformational understandings of the simplicity of the gospel came through another epiphany. We know him as Martin Luther, but he is best known as the single most important figure that catapulted the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther. Relatively unknown until that awakening moment when he was on a pilgrimage to Germany and he had access to a Bible and in studying the book of Habakkuk, he read these words, the just shall live by faith. 
Prior to that pivotal moment, Martin Luther discovered that his church taught that salvation was something that you had to earn through good deeds. But Martin Luther's epiphany, as a result of a revelation from God, he read two verses in Scripture that blew away the theology of salvation by works to salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And I'm glad today that I don't have to work my, for my salvation. I am glad that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But what was his epiphany verses? Here they are in Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. The Bible says, for the vision is yet for, and what are the next two words? Appointed time. But at the end it will speak, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but end it with me. But the just shall live by faith. When Martin Luther discovered that verse, the world has not been the same since. Something happened in Martin Luther's life that, that removed his fear of the monolith of Rome. Martin Luther knew that he was up against popes and bishops and prelates and political leaders, but something happened in Martin Luther's life that he feared man less and he desired to honor God more. And the Protestant Reformation that has now survived more than 500 years, Martin Luther, after reading that verse, began a movement back to the Bible and the Bible only. Oh, come on now. If it wasn't for Martin Luther, the Bible would not have been translated from Latin to German. And out of that came the Gutenberg Press. And out of that came, years later, the American Bible Societies. Martin Luther decided, if the just are going to live by faith, the just don't have to try to work their way to heaven. All they've got to do is get the living word of God down in their lives, and the transformation will take place. And that divine epiphany ignited the Protestant Reformation and now for more than 500 years, we know that God's word is more powerful than any work that we can ever perform. Because epiphanies transform us from what was to what will be. But, but the verse is significant because I want to go back to the very beginning of that verse. It says, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. Now look at the epiphany in that statement. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. Meaning God had set a time that he was going to take Martin Luther from what he had believed, and, that, and at that appointed time, God transitioned Martin Luther from what he used to believe to what he now believes. From who he used to be to who he became, an appointed time. And it also says, though it tarries, wait for it. God has an appointed time for every one of us to transfer us from who we used to be to who we can be. Because not everything that's secret remains in secret. Those epiphany moments are illustrated in the book of Luke, chapter 8 and verse 17. For the Bible says, For nothing 
is secret that will not be revealed. For anything hidden that will not be made known and come to light. I'll read that one more time. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. What does that mean for the Christian? If God chooses to keep something in his words secret for a short period of time, the Bible is in essence saying that after that period of time, what was secret will be revealed. What was hidden will be made known. There was a time that people did not understand the Sabbath. But praise the Lord, during the 1800s, a revival took place in America. The Advent movement began to transform the understanding, and Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists got together, and in their epiphany moments, they began to search God's word for themselves, and the Sabbath came back to the surface. And the truth about what happens when you die came back to the surface. And salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone came back to the surface. Can somebody say amen? This movement was a movement of epiphany. Because God had chosen a time to take the cover off of the darkness that was enshrouding long inspired thoughts in his word. And he gave that truth and understanding to a movement we now call the Advent movement. The Apostle Paul, who was once blind himself, talked about the epiphany that comes through the Word of God. Colossians 1 and verse 26, we read, he says, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been, what, my friends? Revealed to his saints. What is Paul saying? He is saying the Old Testament church, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they had a particular understanding. But when Christ came, he brightened the moment. He is the light of the world. He took the cap off of things that did not make sense. He brought light to those places that were dark. And those things that were hidden began to slowly unfold in the minds of his hearers. And that's why he brought his disciples aside in many moments when he spoke to multitudes, the Lord said to the disciples, come aside and I will reveal to you what the multitude does not know. And you find in the book of Matthew, and when he had taken them away privately, that epiphany moment. And I would suggest to you today that there will be epiphany moments in your life when you have a private moment with Christ. But Habakkuk once again takes us back to the appointed time. And so today, by the way, that was just the foundation. Today, the central focus of this message is for every one of us, there is an appointed time. Now for us to unfold this, you'll discover today that there's something that must transpire before that moment arrives. And today I'm going to address two things. On one side, conditions. What did I just say was that word? On the other side, timing. What is that word? On one side, condition. On the other side, timing. Let me begin with condition. Let me begin with condition. Is it possible to walk with Jesus and still remain in the dark? <laughs> okay, okay. All right, all right, I hear you, Bob, but that's not the answer. John 16 and verse 12. 
These men walked with Jesus every day. And Jesus said to them, as he diagnosed his disciples before he enlightened them, Jesus said to, and by the way, I didn't mean to set you up like that. But Jesus diagnosed his disciples. And I want you to hang on each of the words today because they're very significant. He diagnosed his disciples. He did what? He diagnosed his disciples before he enlightened them. Let me make this very clear. I'm going to read the verse and come back to that point. The Lord said to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There were truths that Jesus wanted to reveal to his disciples. But he said to them, Peter, you're not at that place spiritually yet that I could tell you what I want to tell you. Thomas, you're still dealing with doubt in your life. And you're not at that place where your doubts are weaker than your faith. So I have to wait until a particular time before I can reveal to you what I want to tell you. There's so much I'd like to tell you, but I just can't tell you right now because you can't handle it. And let me tell you, I understand what that means. I, I had an experience with a young man. We had a revelation seminar in Northern California when I was there and a young man came the very first night. That's when we had revelation seminars evangelistic series for six weeks. It'd be nice to have a six week series here. That'd be near impossible. But that was how it used to be. The very first night when this young man came after the meetings, actually this meeting was with Pastor Doug Batchelor and I in Sacramento, California. The very first night he came at the end of the meeting and he said, tell me what the mark of the beast is. I want to know. Well, he had tattoos on the tips of his ears. He had long hair, not that, not that there's anything wrong with long hair, but he had more energy than he had insight. And the only thing we could say to him is keep coming. We'll talk about the mark of the beast in week number six. In other words, we've got a whole lot to say to you, but you can't bear that right now. But I had another moment like that when I was in the Virgin Islands. My brother's wife, who passed away uh, when she was just 34 years old. She would notice that when we came to the Virgin Islands, we would go to church every Sabbath morning. But she went to church on Sunday. She went to the Catholic church, where most of my family attends. The church on the hill. The big, golden, red church that has been a part of Frenchtown for more than a hundred years. So one Sabbath we came back from church and she says, um, tell me what you believe. And I said to her, Romea, if I tell you what I believe, it's going to blow away everything that you have ever believed. She said, tell me I could handle it. So we sat down there in the kitchen at their home little small house in Frenchtown. And I began to unfold to her one. She was prying. She was asking deep questions. So why do you go to church on Saturday? was the very first question. You really want to know? I told about that. 
and then about what happens when you die. She kept praying. And when I left, she would call me and we would have these conversations on the phone. Tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. And she had gained such understanding that by the time she was diagnosed with melanoma cancer and her life began to go in a different direction and her family would say, we have noticed that you have been coming to, you have not been coming to church up the hill. They call it up the hill. And she said, I don't, I don't go to church up the hill anymore. The devil lives up the hill. And it infuriated her father. He said, what? Because that was the religion of her family. She said, I don't go up that hill anymore. The devil lives up the hill. And she called me one day when we moved to St. Louis and were pastoring there. And I was on my way to 3ABN to do some music. And on my way driving back, she called me while she was struggling with cancer. And she says, uh, stay on the phone with me. My aunt is over here. And she has a gallon jar of holy water that she wants to anoint me with. Please stay on the phone until she leaves. And I talked to her from 3ABN all the way to St. Louis. Let me talk about the epiphany. When she passed away, and you've heard this part, but that's not what I want to illustrate, but I have to tell it to you just because it fits. When she passed away, surrounded by seven family members, or seven people, one of those being the nurse and six being family members, her father, her mother, her brother, her sister, her niece, my brother. And she had been declared dead. 15 minutes after they disconnected everything from her, she came back to life and startled everyone in the room, a moment of epiphany. She looked across the room and saw the time in the room. She said, what time is it? She said, I can be out of here in 15 minutes. And her mother said, how could you see the clock? You don't have your glasses on. She says, it's as clear as day. I could see it. And she wore glasses that were thick. She called her brother, my brother to her side, her father to her side. And she began to work out all the issues between family members. And then she said, I don't want my funeral up that hill. I want John, Jimmy's brother to do my funeral. And at the funeral, I want him to tell the family what the Bible teaches about what happens when you die. She commanded me to do an evangelistic presentation at the funeral, Terry. So imagine this. I'm in Frenchtown surrounded by all these people that don't believe that. And I have a screen. Have you ever been to a funeral where there is an evangelistic presentation on a screen about what happens when you die? I think the answer is no. But let me tell you what happened as a result of that the epiphany moment. The father requested, as she requested, that I sing for her funeral. She says, I want John to sing at my funeral. Well, you got to clear it with the priest. Her father asked the priest. He said, no, I don't want him singing in this church. Because he knew that I was a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. And the father said, you don't want my daughter's wishes to be carried out in the church I've been attending all these years. And that angered him. See, God used this pivotal moment to turn the hearts that were against the truth toward the truth. And when that funeral service was done at the funeral parlor and we did the evangelistic presentation, I 
to keep peace in their family, said, go ahead, guys. You can have a service at the Catholic Church just to keep peace. And her father, after that, said, that service up the hill wasn't a service. What happened in the funeral parlor that you presented, that was a funeral service. And out of that experience, out of that experience, the family members began to inquire about the truth of God's word, an epiphany, a turning moment. Tell me more. Tell me more. You see, God can use pivotal moments where he knew that prior to those moments, people were not ready to receive what he had in store. But he uses those moments to transform us from what we were to what we can be. But there are things that have to take place before those moments come. So let's go ahead and start with the case of the word condition. You see, before we can receive a revelation of God's truth to us, we must be willing to receive a revelation of, of God's truth about us. I'm going to say it one more time. Before God will give us a revelation of his truth to us, David, God is going to give us a revelation of his truth about us. Let me use a Bible verse to verify that point. Isaiah 6 and verse 1. Look at what brought Isaiah to his epiphany. The Bible says, in the year that King Uzziah died, here are the epiphany words. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Before God revealed his truth to Isaiah, he had to reveal his truth about Isaiah. When Isaiah saw God, Isaiah saw himself. Before God qualified Isaiah, God uncovered Isaiah. God says, you'll never know who you are and what condition you are until you begin to compare yourself with somebody that is not like you. And look at what happened next. Isaiah saw God. I saw the Lord, the epiphany moment. And I would suggest to you that our lives will be transformed like Isaiah's life was transformed when we can say, I saw the Lord. Look what happened. Look what happened when he got a glimpse of God. Isaiah 6, verse 5 to 8. So I said, woe is me. Why? For I am undone. I'm a project that needs to be refurbished. I am not where God wants me to be. And then he begins to be specific about himself. Let me make a point. Until you get to the place in your life where you understand your sin specifically, your prayer life will be, God, just fix me. Fix me from what? 
What do you need to be fixed from? Isaiah was specific. I am a man of unclean lips. My problem is my mouth. You ever prayed for God to help your mouth? Or your corrupt thoughts? Isaiah didn't pray a general prayer. He said, I am a man of unclean lips. I got a problem with my mouth. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm not the only one. Everybody in town is just like me. We're filthy. But notice what he said. How did he know that? How did he understand his condition? Look what he said. For my eyes, say it with me. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Until we see God the way he is. We'll never see ourselves the way we are. And if all we do is compare ourselves to ourselves or compare us to others who are just as unclean as we are, there'll never be a change or an epiphany in our lives. There'll never be a transforming moment. And I would suggest to you, I'm going to read the rest of the text. I would suggest to you that those are the moments that say to God, now begin the work in transforming that lie. So when Isaiah saw himself, God said, okay, angel, now we can start our work. So what did he do? Look at verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, look at what he said. Praise God for what he said. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Can I get an amen somewhere? When we have a revelation of God and we come to the conclusion that we are undone, I said, I'm going to start with condition. We're going to get to time in a moment. Only two points from condition to time. When we see God for who he is and we see ourselves for who we are at that moment, it's a pivotal, but powerful moment. We have to decide, am I going to stay this way or am I going to desire for God to change my life? And Isaiah, praise the Lord for that. Isaiah said, I can't be this way any longer. And that dissatisfaction with himself brought him to the place where he said, Lord, I need my life to be changed. And I want you to notice something. Isaiah did not ask for the Lord to touch his lips. He just said, that's my problem. He didn't say, Lord, would you touch my lips? But the Lord knew that he acknowledged his condition. And when the Lord knew that Isaiah acknowledged his condition, he did in Isaiah's life what he was going to do in Uzziah's life. That's why the verse says, in the year that King Uzziah died, the vision that God had for Uzziah was transferred to Isaiah because Isaiah acknowledged his condition where Uzziah didn't. Go back and read the story about Uzziah. He was a king from 16 to 58 years old. Sorry, from, from 16 to 62. And in the latter part of his life, he became a fool. And died a leper because God showed him his condition and he refused to acknowledge it. And he died of leprosy in a, in, a, in, a, in a house outside of the city where he once reigned. He died a leper 
because God showed him his condition and he refused to acknowledge it. That's why the Bible says in the year that he died, God gave the vision he had for Uzziah to Isaiah. And look at the difference. When he saw God, he saw himself. And brethren, here's the, here's the sad part of this story. So many of us are asking for a vision of God, but I said it earlier. Before God gives us a revelation of himself to us, he gives us a revelation of himself about us. He shows us who we are before he shows us what he wants us to do. And so many people want to do stuff for God, but God wants to do stuff for us first. And that's where verse 8 comes in. I see who I am. And the Lord says, you are no longer that way. And then God asked the question. Also, verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 6. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Come on together. Here am I. Send me. You know what happened in those three verses? It's probably, to me, one of the most profound transformations in Scripture. Isaiah goes from seeing God, seeing himself, being purged, being put into a right standing before God, and then God doesn't even have to ask Isaiah directly, are you going to go now that I've fixed your life up? He said, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah says, Lord, after what you've done for me, I'm going. Which is, which is the explanation as to why more people don't go for God? Because they refuse to see themselves. If we cannot see ourselves, we cannot see what God has in store for us. And God will never, let me say this again, God will never send us on a mission for him. until he shows us who we are and he transforms us. How can I say to somebody that this is going to work for you when it doesn't work for me? What happened in these three verses? Isaiah saw his sinfulness after he saw God's holiness. God cleaned him up and Isaiah said, Lord, I need to do something as a result of my gratitude for the way you transform my life. I believe if more of us had lives that we wanted to be transformed and accepted that transformation, I believe there'll be more of us who say to God, Father, as long as I breathe, I want to be about my father's business. That transformation happened. Part of the problem today is that when the Bible points out this generation, it says we're living in a generation that is incapable of seeing its condition. Look at this. Isaiah saw his condition, but it gets even more diabolical today because we're living in the generation that is incapable of seeing its condition. Look at this. Revelation 3, verse 17. Huh. <laughs> Look at the condition. I'm glad Isaiah didn't do this. 
because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of how much? Nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Just imagine somebody running down the street in that condition, and you say to yourself, does he not see himself? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and don't have any clothes on. Is he out of his mind? What would you say? He's lost his mind. But here's the danger. Here's the danger. What God did for Isaiah, he wants to do for every one of us. And I'm still in the category of condition. So the Apostle Paul, in the very same way, in the very same way, was given a revelation of the same world that we're living in today, the condition of the Christian world in the last days. And so God instructed Paul to tell us, tell you and me, that there's something I want you to do before I can use you for anything that I want to do. Let me say that again. Before I use you to advance my kingdom and to bring hope to other people, there's something that I need you to do that Isaiah did. Look at what it is. God instructed Paul to tell us what we need to do so that we can become useful to God. And we are still in the context of condition. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. What are the two words on the screen? Say it together with me. Say it again. Examine who? Yourself. Huh. That's a revelation. Because you know what? We like examining other folk. Yeah, I wish they were here for the sermon. <laughs> I don't know. I can, if I had a nickel every time I heard that, man, I'd be a rich man. I wish they were here for the sermon. Where were they today when that sermon happened? Send them a link. And, and some folk that would say that miss what God was trying to say to them. But the Bible is saying, let's read it together. Examine who? Yourself. As to whether you are in the faith. Test who? Yourself. Stop testing and examining other folk. When God is saying, you have the problem, but you spend so much time checking out everybody else's garbage that I can't even give you an epiphany of yourself. And then Paul ends by saying, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Say it a different way. If Christ is not in you, you are good for absolutely nothing. What just happened there? We cannot be delivered from a condition that we fail to acknowledge. The Apostle Paul did not receive deliverance from himself until he accepted the diagnosis about himself. It happened to Isaiah. It happened to Paul. And if we want the experience that Isaiah had, and the experience that Paul had, because we look back, when you say the prophet Isaiah, do we revere him? Oh, Isaiah the prophet. And we look back at Paul the apostle nowadays, and we don't say, you mean that murderer? No, no. 
If it had not been for that epiphany moment, the Apostle Paul, now one of the most prolific contributors to the writings of the New Testament, why did that happen? Because Paul had an epiphany moment with God. He saw himself. What evidence do I have to that? Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 24. He saw himself. He saw himself. He said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We cannot be delivered from a condition we fail to acknowledge. So we get a new tie, a hanky to match. We look the part, but God says, within you, are you're just nothing but a sepulcher of dead bones. You look great. People are going to compliment your outfit this morning. But show them your spiritual condition, and I guarantee you they won't compliment it. What would happen if God put a red light above our heads and a green light? And, and when you came to church, the light will be whatever color your life was in. If they came to a red light, yeah, they messed up. Came to the green light, yeah, that's a saint. Thank God he doesn't do that. Come on, somebody. <laughs> We're only letting green lights in today because them red lights... Bad for the congregation. Thank God he sees us, but he loves us so much. You see, Paul, the apostle Paul was in that context. Paul told Timothy the reason he needs what God is offering. Paul said to Timothy, the reason that I need what God is offering because he has shown me that I cannot receive it until my life is in the place he wants it to be. Look at what he said to Timothy. He told this young understudy that I need what God is offering because he knows what he is worthy, because he, he knows what he is worthy of not receiving. Paul says, I'm, I'm not worthy of receiving that. He, he always talks about his condition. Notice what he says. 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what, friends? To save sinners. And how many of us would say this? Of whom I am chief. I'm talking about condition. Condition. Until we acknowledge who we are, the epiphany will elude us. Our journey will be confusing, short-sighted, and unfulfilling at best. And the most that we can... Uh, look forward to is membership, not discipleship, not a thr thrilling, powerful life, because it is clear. Paul said it. It is clear. First Corinthians two and verse 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are what? Spiritually discerned. Until the condition of the life is changed, until we accept God's diagnosis of us and say, Lord, deliver me from my wretchedness, we will never get to the place where we are excited and thrilled and, and, and empowered to say to folk, you need what I have. Because I know who I was. 
And by Christ Jesus, I know who I am. Now let's go to the last part. Condition is clear. Before God, before God gives us a revelation of his truth to us, we have to be willing to receive a revelation of God's truth about us. Now let's go to the last part. The timing. The timing. After Jesus addressed the conditional aspects as to why he could not disclose much to his disciples, he then added a timing to it. Tracy. Here it is. Mark 9 and verse 9. I've read this before about the transfiguration. And I say today, I would have loved to have been there to see Christ transformed. That's when he said, there are many of you standing here today who will not taste of death until you see the Son of Man coming in his power and great glory. And there was Elijah and Moses, the Mount of Transfiguration. In They came to encourage Christ about the road that he was about to walk. And these disciples, Peter, James, and John, saw it. They were excited by what they saw. They wanted nothing more than to say what they saw, but he said, don't say a word until the timing aspect. Here it is. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them. He did what? He didn't suggest. It was a command. He commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen. Look at the next word. Till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Okay, I got to take a breath. My heart is speeding up. Why did the Lord say that? At this point, Jesus had not yet risen. So they could not testify about his resurrected life. And the Lord knew that until there is a connection between what they saw and how they lived, their testimony would simply be a version of what they saw on the mountain. Now, I'm going to say that one more time really slowly because I want you to grab that. Why did the Lord say, don't tell anyone what you saw? Because he knew that until there is a connection between what they saw and how they lived, it will just be a version of their mountaintop experience. Not a revelation of Jesus's mountaintop experience. You see, the disciples were commanded not to say anything until Christ had risen. Let me make the application. Because Jesus knew until the son of man is risen in us, we are not qualified to say anything. Is that deep? 
until the son of man is risen in you. What are you saying? Do you know his resurrected life? How could you talk about a life you don't know? How could you speak about a life when you're not even walking in the newness of life? How could you speak about the resurrected life when you haven't even experienced a resurrection of Christ in you yet? You've been on the mountain. You saw something up there. What did you see? I saw Moses and Elijah. Yeah. What else did you see? Oh, just great bright light. Wow. That must've been spectacular. What did you see until Jesus has risen in them? They couldn't go forth to proclaim the transformation, but it's going to get a little deeper. Here's the point. When Jesus, when Jesus is on the mountain, he had not yet been risen. So therefore they could not testify, testify about his resurrected life. It was impossible for Christ to be revealed through them until he had risen in them. But now let's take it to the deeper level. Let's go to Mark chapter 16. I'm going to preface this verse by saying <laughs> when Jesus rose, the stone was rolled away. Am I right? The stone was not rolled away, Ian, just to reveal an empty tomb. The stone was rolled away to reveal a risen Savior. I want you to get this. Jesus was alive before the stone was rolled away. Is that right? But no one believed it until the stone was rolled away. I'm going to say it again. I'll ask you the question. Was Jesus alive before the stone was rolled away? Did anyone believe it until the stone was rolled away? No, not even his disciples. Now look at this passage. Father, give me wisdom to unfold this the way that will give you glory. Jesus is in the tomb. The women waited till the Sabbath is passed. They're on their way to the garden to anoint the body with spices and ointments and frankincense for his embalming. And they're talking amongst themselves. Mark chapter 16, verse three and four. And they said amongst themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it was very large. You ready for it? I'm going to say it with my eyes closed so I could see it. Satan is content to have us tell the story 
of the risen Lord, as long as the stone in our life is not rolled away to reveal him. We may tell people that Jesus is alive in us, but until the stone in our life is rolled away, no one will ever see the glory of the risen Lord revealed through us. And what will we be? Nothing but a sepulcher. You see, the apostle Paul made this statement in Philippians three and verse 10. He said that I may know him and the what? And the what? Can we say that word power with power and the what? Power of his resurrection. See, there's not just the resurrection, but there's power in the resurrected life. If you know that, say amen. There's, there's power in the resurrected life. Can I give a testimony? I was at a pastor's meeting in Northern California when I was pastoring there. My ministerial director was well in his 70s. A pastor that was preaching a sermon asked the question, when were you pastors converted? A room filled with pastors. And my ministerial director, well in his 70s, stood up and said, I was converted seven years ago. He had been in the work more than 40 years at that time. He said, I was converted seven years ago. And he took his glasses off and began with tear-filled eyes to tell his testament of the moment when he got converted. He was a ministerial director. He was a pastor. He was ordained for more than 30 years. But he said, I was not converted till seven years ago. And we stood as pastors and watched this grown man cry when he told us as our pastor that he had just been converted seven years earlier. He was great at preaching. He was wonderful at administration. He counseled pastors to help counsel members, but he wasn't converted until seven years before that. What am I saying? There are stones in our lives that are there to eclipse the power and the evidence of the risen savior. And until these stones are rolled away, brethren, the timing of the epiphany in our lives will never occur. God is saying to us, I want to be revealed through you, but you got stones in your lives that need to be rolled away. I heard a song. I never understood it. Somebody sang a song, roll away the stone. I understand it now. Because the stone Jesus was alive before the stone was rolled away. But until the stone was rolled away, the revelation of the risen Christ was never evident to those who were looking at the tomb. What are some of the stones? A stone of busyness, too busy to set aside time, too busy to set aside time to pursue the power of the risen life. The stone of worldliness, too absorbed by the world to even desire the power of the risen Christ. The stone of contentment, happy where you are, not interested in the resurrected power of the Savior activated in your life. The stone of denominationalism, believing that doctrines are enough. The stone of lifestyle, I live like I am alive, but salvation in my life 
hopefully can be accomplished by my works. The stone of self-righteousness. Too religious to think that I even need the power of the resurrected Christ in my life. I got a great vegetarian diet. I keep the Sabbath. I pay tithe of mint and anise. Sound familiar? Religious. And the stone of spiritual blindness, which is the problem of this age. Can't see my need of the power of the resurrected life. It is to this generation that the Lord is saying, I've got a day of Pentecost set for you. And I want you to have your own personal epiphany so that you can know the power of the resurrected life. Acts 1.8. I'm winding up now. Don't slow me down. Acts 1 verse 8. Look at the, look at the epiphany. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2 verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, what happened on that day? Acts 1 and verse 8, look at the epiphany of timing, the epiphany of timing. But you shall receive what, church? Power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Here's my point. Until your day of Pentecost happens, the epiphany will elude you because it is about timing. When Christ is risen in you, you will know these things, the refreshing, exhilarating, transforming, and empowering presence of the risen Christ in your life. But so many people don't have it. The epiphany is the power of salvation extended to humanity. Look at the Apostle Paul's testimony. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. Let's look at this. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness. Is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The what of God? The power of God. Notice this. Condition, acknowledge who you are first. Timing, when the Lord wants to transfer you from who you were to who you can be, you got to be ready for the timing. You see, Apostle Paul knows and understands this. The Apostle Paul had his epiphany moment. He could not talk about the power of God until he had a revelation of the power of God. You remember his epiphany moment? Acts chapter 22 and verse 6. Here is his epiphany moment. Now it happened as I journey and came near Damascus, at about noon, suddenly, a great light from heaven shone around me. His epiphany moment. He saw himself and the Lord says, Paul, why are you fighting? Why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Paul went from standing by to standing with Jesus. Paul went from information as a Pharisee to transformation as a Christian. Somebody say Amen. Paul went from being an opposition to the gospel to an opponent of the gospel. And God turned that man's life around. What am I saying to the church today? We need to go from the humdrum of church membership to the power of a life that has been transformed by a revelation of the power of God in each one of us. The epiphany that Jesus reveals himself through us is not an epiphany that Jesus just reveals himself by us. Paul says it's clear. It's not from us. Second Corinthians four and verse seven. He says this, look at this, but we have this treasure in what? 
earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and what? Not of us. He says, look at us. We're frail. We are weak. But God is saying the epiphany of Christ can be this. Jesus can reveal himself through us as those whose lives are transformed, not just by us, whose lives are nothing more than Seventh-day Adventists. You can keep the Sabbath and not have the Holy Spirit. You can have the best diet and go to hell. You can pay tithe and have the most accurate record of how much you gave mint and anise and never know the power of the resurrected Christ. But when the resurrected Christ becomes a reality in you, you understand what the power of God means because the epiphany is not just God revealing himself through us and not just by us, but the epiphany is the power of God to overcome the grip of the enemy. Here it is. Luke 10 and verse 19, what did Jesus say to his disciples after their moment of epiphany, after the moment of the day of Pentecost? He says, behold, I give you authority. I give you what, friends? Authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over how much? All the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Amen. My last two passages. The epiphany has one more thing. It solidifies our dedication to Christ. Somebody might say, wow, well, you know, that's pretty uh, standard. I don't think so. The reason I know that's not standard is because when I had my epiphany, I lost my job and I became sold out to Christ. This is no longer a job. This is no longer about how much I made a year. This is about where I'm headed and my determination to get there. It was no longer about doing Wednesday night prayer meeting, getting a sermon ready for Sabbath morning, making sure everything is covered. It was about making sure that we all get there together. And I can say today, as Paul said, in Romans 1.16, after my epiphany, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. How many of us? Everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. So my last point, here's the caveat. The caveat. I found this little short saying and it was so powerful to me. 
The epiphany that God is calling you is this. You are just one decision away from a totally different life. One decision. And what is that decision? That decision is simple. When you come down from your mountaintop, you'll determine that from this moment on, I'm not going to say a single thing until I have an experience of the resurrected Christ in my life. But you'll pursue it. You'll pray about it. You'll study your Bible as though your eternity depends on it. You'll examine yourself. You'll accept God's diagnosis of who you are. And you'll get ready for the day of Pentecost in your life. And when that day comes, there's nothing that will stop you. There's nothing that will prevent you. There's nothing that could turn you back. Paul never went back. Peter was crucified upside down because he refused to go back. They put John in a pot of boiling oil. They couldn't turn him back. And all the disciples died in the faith, and they never went back. Thomas doubted no more. Philip and Andrew and James, they wrote, they lived, they breathed, they preached. Timothy, Mark, they turned the world upside down in 35 years because for them, it no longer meant being ashamed of who they are. And the gospel took them from where they were, and they saw themselves in the light of eternity. They said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Brethren, God's got more in store for us. <laughs> Somebody asked me, how many members do we have? I said, I don't know. I could check the conference records <laughs> and compare them with our church books. But God's not asking how many members do we have. He said, how many people want to have, how many of you want the power of Christ in your life? And when that happens, you'll know what happened in the Bible, Shelley. The Lord turned on so many lives that the church clerk said multitudes were added. She didn't even know how many were added. And that's why there's going to be a turning on of power from heaven. And John says it in Revelation, I saw a multitude that no one could number. Because it's no longer about numbers. It's about transformed lives of every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every people. So here's my point today. You are just one decision away from a totally different life. Let me ask you a question. And God is going to record it. And God is going to hold you to it. How many of you are willing to pursue the epiphany of a transformed life? You know what that means? You can't go back home and ignore your Bible this week or just say, I don't have time or I'm too busy or I don't really think I need it or I'm a good Adventist or I have a great diet or I already keep the Sabbath. You got to say, I want to be something other than what I am for Christ. I want to go forward. I want to be exhilarant, exuberant. I want to be empowered. I want to be transformed. I want to be refreshed so that when people see me, they don't see a stone. 
They don't see a sepulchre. They see a representation of the risen Christ in the life of a transformed saint. I'm going to pray. And if you're serious about pursuing that, would you stand with me? Would you stand with me today? Loving Father in heaven, sometimes Christianity eclipses the term transformed. Sometimes we are so content to be well informed about our 28 fundamentals. We understand the sanctuary and the 2300 days. But Father, how many more days will there be in our lives before we are transformed and empowered and, 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 and so on fire for Christ that this world just loses its hold of us? And then some people look at us again and they say, wait a minute, I, I, I think a stone has been rolled away in his life. A stone has been rolled away in her life. A stone has been rolled away in that church because those people are eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. I can see it as evidence shining forth from their lives. And so, Lord Jesus, take us to that mountaintop. But may we not come down to tell what we saw until Christ is risen in us. Hold us to it, Father. Agitate us through your spirit. Make us discontent with the things that are fading away. And give us that Holy Ghost passion to pursue this transformation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.